Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast and our final edition from the Californian Desert. I'm Seb Lozier and coming up we will hear from Indian Wells semi-finalists Taylor Fritz and Grigor Dimitrov plus the Bulgarian's coach Dante Bottini. We also have Cam Norrie's coach Facundo Lagones but first let's hand over to our commentators Gigi Salmon and Miles McLagan fresh from the Indian Wells final with a full roundup on 11 stunning days of tennis. 40-15 championship point. Norrie serves down the tee, the stretch on the backhand. The backhand swept cross-court from Norrie. The forehand is long. It's long from Nicholas Baslashvili. And Cameron Norrie is a Masters champion. He is king of the desert. Second career title, second this year. And the biggest of his career. He is the new world number 16. He is the British number one. And he is ninth in the race to Turin. Cameron Norrie, a Masters winner with his win number four. 47 of an incredible 2021. He takes the appreciation from the crowd, the smile on his face. Cameron Norrie, a winner in India Wells, beating Nicholas Baslashvili in an hour and 49 minutes. 3 6, 6 4, 6 1. Miles McLagan, Cameron Norrie, Masters winner. Don't know if I mention my name in the same sentence like that, do you? But uh, you are absolutely right. Cam Norrin, even he said, if you told me at the beginning of the week that this would, this is how it would end, he wouldn't believe it. But, you know, he's put in such a great performance, so tough physically and mentally. They, they go hand in hand. And, well, it's sort of been trending. His uh, sixth final of the year, he's beaten a lot of big names. He knows exactly what he's uh, looking to do out in the court. Unbelievably impressive and deserved. He now has a realistic chance of making it to the Tour Finals in Turin and being among the best eight players in the world in 2021. He's, yeah, just knocking on the door. Tenth he is, and we're not expecting Nadal to show up. And, well, he's, he's feeling some confidence at just the right time. So, um, you know, with, with with Paris, obviously a lot of points on offer, on offer there and a couple of other events, he's in pretty good shape. And during the course of that final, where he would lose the first set, he was able to weather the purple patches of Nicolas Bazalashvili. Well, he's got the game and the mindset for it, and he would have been prepared for it. Yes, he, he got off to that good start, and you just wondered, think, oh, has that happened a bit too quickly? Bazalashvili found some great form of purple patch, winning, I think it was seven from eight games in a row when the winners started to fly. But overall, too many unforced errors from the Georgian. I think that was probably um, somewhat due to the way Cam plays. It was also a little breezy out there today, so the footwork was extremely important. But there were certainly many, it felt many crossroads in that match and uh, where it could have gone either way. And Norrie was just a, a little bit tougher. Cameron Norrie, you started the year as the world number 71 now becomes the new world number 16. I just feel that 2021 has been incredible for stories across the ATP and the WTA. What for you has stood out during the time in the desert? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. As we, as we see the guys at the top of the game start to sort of move on, there's going to be some spaces available. And well, I suppose one of the old guys who hasn't moved on just yet 
is Andy Murray. <laughs> I mean, still providing incredible <laughs> stories, isn't he? I mean, um, a, a win against Manorino, that's always tricky. A great battle against uh, the young Carlos Alcaraz. What a story he is. That was that went just over three hours. So that was going to be a huge test for Murray. How would he come back? And he, he came back strong. He was pushed hard by, by, by he pushed Zverev hard. That was a good match. And I think he's showing his level was there. He just needs to build that match, uh, that match toughness and confidence again. And then Zverev, well, after getting through that, he started to look very good. Wins over Monfils, had it in his hand against Taylor Fritz. Well, he was your pick, wasn't he, in our he predictions was. competition? I thought conditions are good for him. You know, the, the, a gritty surface that he could run down a lot of balls. The serve was going to be mighty effective, and it was, was all looking good. Yeah. And then the wheels came off against Taylor Fritz. And for your predictions. <laughs> Those wheels came off a while ago. Yeah, my, I don't think mine ever had any wheels. Um, Grigor Dimitrov rolling back the years with some of the tennis he played, including that win over Daniel Medvedev. I think, what was that, just his, his second win over a, a top two player. Daniel Medvedev may be understandable, everything that comes with becoming a, a Grand Slam champion and then having to, to continue on as that life-changing moment sinks in. But Dimitrov, it's wonderful to see him playing like we've seen him play through the course of many years it really is a hard worker a professional a good guy very popular so it's nice to see him have success and you know we hope he can work somewhere back to rankings and i think that's what's interesting we've got new guys coming through then we've got the likes of dimitrov who'll still be looking i'm sure for a spot in the top 10 and if he can get wins like he did you know really was down and out against medvedev and he was able to come through. He kept believing if he can show that sort of form, because we know what sort of quality is. Semi-finalist at, at Grand Slams, a winner in, uh, at the Masters 1000 level. So, so a quality player. Lots of guys knocking and pushing for these top spots. They certainly are. And lots of guys knocking and pushing for the spots in Turin. It's the first year it's going to be held in Turin. So we know that guaranteed they've booked their place. Novak Djokovic, Daniel Medvedev, Stefanos Tsitsipas, Sasha Zverev, and most recently Andrei Rublev crept in. Matteo Berrettini, he's just 75 points off. So I think we're going to put Matteo Berrettini in. Then you've got Kasparud, seventh. Eighth, Rafa Nadal, who we know with a foot injury won't be there. So then that puts Hubert Hercatch into that eighth spot, which means Cameron Norrie is ninth in the race. Then you've got Yannick Sinner, Felix Ogialiasim and Aslan Karatsev, another of the stories of 2021. There's still a lot of points up for grabs and there are still places to be won in Turin. And it's often a sort of a, all goes in the, in the tumble dryer at the end of the year, doesn't it? Who can score those big points? A lot on offer. Guys start to get a little bit tired. It's been a tough year because of because of travel. But a number of those players, I mean, the likes of Basilevili, we've just seen Shapovalov, you know, shot makers. Who's going to really bet against them? Diego Schwartzman, he's, he's been there before. What a tough, gritty competitor he is how far down it goes statistically I'm not exactly sure i'm not sure if it do, does go that far but you know carrot save with sort of tennis he can play get himself in the mix well it's intriguing and it certainly looks like it's going to go down to the wire you're listening to the atp tennis radio podcast thanks to our commentators gigi salmon and Miles McLaggen, and you can hear more from them and the rest of the commentary team in a couple of weeks time from the final masters 1000 of the year the rolex Paris Masters. Back though to Indian Wells and what a remarkable season it's been so far for Brit Cameron Norrie who reached his sixth tour final of the year in Indian Wells, his first Masters final having started the year at 71 
in the FedEx ATP rankings. All the while, he's been working with former TCU college teammate, now his coach, Facundo Lagones. Oh, well, it's, yeah, it's been a really long path. We started as teammates, then I was there, the volunteer coach, for like two years. And then since he turned pro, it's been like four and a half years. So it's, you can say we've been together for seven years in different stages. And uh, yeah, I would say the 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 best thing about our relationship is how how um, professional we both are and how much fun we can have at the same time and we can have that balance of working really hard but also enjoying life and life on the tour and like uh, make it a, a fun journey. And is that something that was very natural from the beginning or did you feel like um, you had to work on that? No, yeah, we kind of have to work on that. Like kind of like, you know, when, when we're working and we're uh, talking about tennis or like planning the year and stuff like that, get real serious and be honest and have tough conversations if we have to and just to make the best of his career. And then when we're not talking about tennis and we're talking about life, we just kind of switch off the tennis part and we're just friends. And I think we've been doing a great, a very good job also the more time we spend together, the more we know each other and the better the relationship becomes. And when you have those tough conversations, I'm assuming those are probably about like some losses or something that, that are sometimes difficult to accept. What, what, is, what are those um, talks like? What do you, how do you, are you able to get him into a better state mentally, I would say, from those well, talks? Well, yeah, they're, they're always about tennis or about planning or about what, we, what we've done and maybe didn't work out and how can we do it differently. Or how can we do it better? They're obviously always with respect and nothing personal. And usually you try to pick a good time to talk with him and where he's going to be open and honest. And you're not going to pick just after a really tough loss where he's probably not going to get anything out of the conversation because he's just going to be in denial or just not open to like really get to the truth of what happened or what can we do better. So I think that's, it's about timing and also just... Uh, knowing that it's for for the best of his career is nothing, nothing personal. And I mean, you said you've been working with him now for seven years. Um, what do you feel like has been the difference this year in particular? Because he's had such a great successful uh, year so far. Yes, so far. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different things. But I would say the main one is his, uh, his maturity, taking ownership of his career, being being really 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 professional in all aspects and working a lot on his mental part of the game and uh, also I think that comes with a lot more experience it's probably his fourth year on the ATP tour and I think he learned a lot of lessons and I think he's now using those in his advantage so I think from a mental standpoint it was probably his best year and then tennis wise the key was has been his consistency which mm-hmm. I think it comes from being in the right uh, headspace so talk about mentally, like you, you said take ownership um, more often. What exactly does that entail or what has changed in that regard? Yeah, just making uh, making more decisions, yep, being in control of all his stuff more than before he would probably leave everything up to me or to the physio and like he didn't even care what was going on. And now it's like, I want to I wanna do this, I want to do that. I want to get better at this. And we have like weekly calls even with sometimes the physio or the fitness trainer they're not here but we still talk everyone in like more like a business meeting something like that if you can call it and all those things uh, I think he's more prepared when he goes to tournaments and kind of doing investing more time in his career and in himself and I think that's that's showing and so I mean you said that he's um, you know taking more responsibility for things that's helped his mentality are you like be- 
a lot of these teams nowadays are starting to work with sports psychologists. Is that something that you guys have thought about? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He has someone. He has a sports psychologist. Yeah, yeah. He has someone uh, back in New Zealand. Uh, but Is this that for a while now? Yeah, but like this the last year, he's, uh, he's been like more consistent and more more time with him and more conversations and also with us with the team where before it was more casual and not as as something that he really wanted to do now it's something like i really want to get better at this and that's why i say he took ownership because he gave that guy a bigger role and more importance in his game you know the mental part and being prepared to approach competition more consistently and i think that's why he's having so much success and when you first started with him going back again um did you approach it like as his coach now? I know you're his teammate, but as his coach now, did you approach it from the beginning as because so much of it is about getting better as a player? Did you approach it that way as a coach that it is about the process? Yeah, yeah. I feel like at the beginning, I would say the first year and a half, we yeah we spent a lot of time um, kind of like getting to know how to live on the tour and how to like plan things and get better at that, get better at training, like how to train, how to prepare how to do training blocks. And, uh, and then after that, it became more like about his tennis. Kind of like once we got used to like the life on the tour and adjusting to that, more about strictly his tennis, his, his serve, his returns, and stuff like that. And now we're in a part of it's more about his, his mental part of the game, how he's, he can compete better, how he can be more consistent, how he can deal with pressure different and different situations, different tournaments against different opponents. So now I think Kind of everything is clicking together. together. Bit, yeah. yeah. And then just talking about training in general, because to me, he's someone that looks like he can last forever on the court. And I know he is very physically fit. Is that something that gives him confidence, you think, before matches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he has that in the back of his mind. He knows he's one of the fittest guys on tour and he can go for hours. So uh, that's why in, in three sets, he's pretty tough to beat. Uh, he's probably never going to lose a match based on physicality. If he loses, could be because of tennis or other things, but not not because of his physicality. And uh, yeah, he he bases game around that a lot. And besides working with a sports psychologist, does he do any sort of other mental training as far as reading books or? He he actually reads a lot of books. Uh, he's really interested in. Uh, yeah, he reads a lot of books. Uh, what kind of books? Everything. Uh, autobiographies, okay. successful business people, let me say... Um, Do you have any favorite Cam ones? He really loved the one about uh, the singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's one of his oh, favorites. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I read uh, that, actually. That's Scar a long time ago. I yeah, called, yeah, I read that one. That was one, one of his, the first books he read, yeah. and he loved it. And then he also liked the the one about Phil Knight, the oh, Nike founder. The Shoe Dog. The Shoe Dog, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, yeah, He's and he also likes... Have you uh, read those too? Yeah, he actually gave me those okay. and I read them. What did uh, you learn from them, would you say? Uh, about the Red Hot Chili Peppers one. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember? That, that's, yeah, no, I remember. There's some crazy stories and the guy was still successful. I don't know how. Yeah. Like, you can get lucky sometimes, I guess, if you're that guy. Is that what, that's what you learned? No, no. <laughs> just, I don't know. I can't think of the top of my mind right yeah. now. But, yeah. And what what would you say Cameron would would have learned from those books? Have you chatted about them together? No, this was like five years ago yeah. when he read them, so I don't I don't really know. But uh, he also likes really like the one uh, Relentless about uh, Tim Grover, uh, Michael Jordan's fitness trainer, mm -hmm. and he really likes that one. He will read it some every now and then before a tournament or something, cause it gets him fired up and. 
It's so a really good book. Was there anything in particular, or is just something that gets him motivated? He needs to read it. No, before. He, he just liked those stories yeah. and see the the mindset those guys have. The Michael's fitness trainer and Michael Jordan, and he just likes it. Yeah, and so I, since he's been doing that, have you seen a change? Is that do you feel like as part of the change on the court? Uh, almost. Maybe I don't know. He always been very tough mentally, very relentless. That's never been his problem. Now he's I think he's managing his. His energy and his emotions better. It's, not, it's never been about trying with him. He always fights as hard as he can. And that's never been a problem. Sometimes it's more finding the, the right balance where he can perform well. What, what would he do? Get like too amped? Or? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes yeah. he'll get too fired up and it would actually, he wants it too bad, like too, too much sometimes. Yeah. And now he finds the balance where he can like still perform and execute and be calm, but not, not too calm. And how, how did that happen? Well, you, you, you know you work on it you see how much you can get fired up how much you can control that and you work at it you see from past experiences past matches uh, and you kind of see what's your ideal mindset or yeah. level of energy would yeah. say I don't know um, and then also just tennis training I know that he's trained a lot in a lot of different places in London the US Argentina do you feel like having those different training outlets has helped him yeah for sure yeah yeah uh, we actually we've been training everywhere uh, first preseason we did in Argentina which I, th- I think it was great for him he was uncomfortable the whole time not even when he was on the court he was almost hating it he was too tough for him too uncomfortable what, it just was everything just everything not just speaking the old, language okay not knowing the place, the courts weren't great, the gym wasn't great. Uh, going to dinner would take two hours and the places would only open after 9 p.m. So it was everything. And you were used to that, right? I know, I'm for assuming. me it was great, but for him it was it was really tough, but I think he built a lot of toughness out of that and saw how other people train and kind of like, because at the time he didn't train that much or that smart, I would say. And at the time he saw the players, the way they were doing their pre-seasons and that was good. Then we did a couple of ones in, in IMG and Texas. Those were good. And then last year we went to Alicante with Alex Dimonar and Carino mm. uh, Busta and Alcaraz, and it was great too. Does he look back on that realizing that was probably good for him? Yeah, or? yeah. He th- Two, three years later, he said that was good for me. Yeah. It was a good learning experience, but uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. And was that something as a coach that you knew might happen? I knew, I knew it was going to so be So you did really, on purpose? Yeah, and we brought the whole team, so it was good. But uh, the the rest of the guys backed me to do it, and at the time, short term maybe was not great. He was just too like tired, ex- mentally exhausted. But I think long term has been has been good for him. And I know um, a lot of athletes in general talk talk about how you have to be willing to be comfortable to be uncomfortable, and that's a perfect example. Is that something that you still in- incorporate? No, yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's also it's always tougher to make. It's easier to make a 21-year-old uncomfortable where he's just starting, he's ready to do anything, where you have someone who's more established and is now 26 and older, but he's still willing to do things that make him uncomfortable, and if it's for the best of his career, he'll do it. So that's a great part, but uh, but yeah, I th- I, I'm really big on that, making people uncomfortable all the time. Makes it a little bit challenging for you to come up with some stuff. Yeah, no, but we, I do, I do now. We do a couple of drills for, for money, and if he has, has a bad session, he goes down 500 bucks in, <laughs> in a practice day. So it's, that's another way to make him uncomfortable now. And does he pay up? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good, does. good, good. Yeah, yeah, he pays other tennis players that are starting their career, so I make him 
Oh, wow. Send them money. Wow. And any other any other challenging things that you throw at him besides uh, that? This year, no, this year he's been with the money. With the, yeah, we're okay. working, doing drills for money. And if he doesn't do well, he has to pay. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's good. Um, and then for you as a coach, because, you know, you, you were with him from college and now through the tour. What, what do you feel like you've learned from the beginning? being able to transition from college to the tour being with him this whole time yeah you're learning all the time i'm still learning i'm still making mistakes or still looking back a couple of months ago say why we why did we do that we should have done this but at the time you don't know and you try like your what? best so, like what oh no i don't know maybe playing too many tournaments this year or too many uh, doubles as well or like and then we we didn't pick at the right time maybe for us open and cincinnati but those things you think you can do everything and then you hit the wall, but uh, it's part of the process. And I think, I don't know, I just know the tour more. I know a lot of players more. I know what what can get Cam to play uh, his best in big matches. And you kind of pick all that information as you go. It's not something that some, someone's going to tell you this is the way you should do it. So you kind of learn as you go. And and obviously he's had great success, had a lot of top-level wins. What? And, and he's played the best. What do you feel? Have you any specific things you learned from the best matches that he's played that maybe he's either won or lost? No, yeah, yeah. I feel the main thing is you have to be brave and try to make those big points or those big moments on your terms. Obviously, being brave doesn't mean to finish the point in one or two shots, but just uh, play the right way and play the, the way that will give you the best chances. And don't be afraid of that. And just if you have to go for it, you have to go for it. You have to put balls in the court, put balls in the court, but you have to be brave in those moments and and just take those chances because they're not going to give them to you. And just the scheduling too because of how last year was. There, It's very rare that players get a lot of time, that time off, um, for unfortunate reasons obviously with the pandemic. But was that any in any way um, valuable for his learning to get better and work on things? Yeah, for Having sure. Having that bigger block. Yeah, for sure. He actually invested a lot of time in his, in his tennis, in his body. Those During the pandemic, he was running, I think, 10 to 20K a day. He got really fit, real skinny, and it was it was good for him. Yeah. So that just extra level of fitness. Yeah, just extra he, he came back from the pandemic fitter than he was before. Just, he was already fit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Well, I, it's obviously that you guys are just continuing to improve every single day, but that's awesome. Very happy for your All success right. and hope it continues. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Well done to Cam Norrie on a superb first Masters title. Big stepping stone tournament for him. And another player who's had a great time in Indian Wells was American Taylor Fritz, a semi-finalist after beating Olympic champion Sasha Zverev in the quarterfinals. So what's been the biggest difference in his performance and so soon after surgery just four months ago? Joel Krabus put that question to his regular coach, David Nankin. The grass court season, Wimbledon, that whole time of year, he prioritises that. His game's really suited for the grass and... And this year, he had no time to prepare for that with his with his uh, meniscus bucket tear at the French Open when he played uh, uh, Dominic Kopfer. So uh, thankful, thankfully, uh, the doctors actually it was pretty routine procedure. Although we never want to say that when we when there's any surgery involved, but they gave him full clearance to play at Wimbledon, and uh, he came back in. I think it was 21 or 22 days from the day he lost to the French to the day he played at Wimbledon. Saying that, he was medically cleared to play, but we all know what five sets entails. And and for him to win um, 
uh, four set against Brandon Nakashima and then Stevie Johnson and, and put himself in a position. He played Zverev in the third round. But that was, uh, that was a, gr- a great effort. And, and, um, and then you had the summer. I actually spoke to Taylor briefly at the Washington, D.C. tournament when he was playing there, and I asked him about the surgery. And I just felt like there was this level of determination in him to get back quickly. Is that something as a coach that you were nervous about because of that extra, okay? (laughs) Well, anytime you tell Taylor or you kind of put something on it and you you tell him he can't do something, he's probably going to try and prove you wrong. So I'll back up a little bit at the French Open when we were... The same afternoon he fell, we were with the doctors in Paris and they looked at the scan and if I knew what I knew now, I probably would have told the doctor not to say anything, but Taylor asked the question, do you think I'll be able to play Wimbledon? She said, yes, I think it's a possibility and that was the end of that. That's all he needed to hear? Or that's what he... That's it. That's all you needed to hear? playing Wimbledon. Okay. (laughs) The doctor said it's possible, so... So, I mean, when you're when you're working with a player like that, as far as like practicing and and you know he's uh, he, with that comment alone, he seems like someone that could potentially go overboard. How are you able to kind of strain that in? I guess you could say. Yeah, look, you you rather have that he's very competitive. He, he loves playing tennis. He loves playing for anything, and and so that that's really uh, that's the fun part of. Coach and Taylor is, is watching him compete, and he's always, you know, a lot of times I'd say he's his mind's ahead of his body because he wants to do certain things his body can't keep up, and so that that's that's a real joy to to have that in a, in, a, in a in a tennis player. So uh, as far as um, how you train that, I say you just got to kind of monitor every day and and try and challenge in the right direction. And then. Um I know you've worked with him for a while now. You've been working with him and Paul Anacone as well. Um, you're, are you the main travel coach, or, um, or do you guys split I would, it? We, I would say we split it. You, you split know, it. Michael Russell helps out as well. You okay. Know, he's doing doing some European stuff. So. And so having all three of you guys together, um, how do you all work together? Because having those different voices and can, for a player can sometimes be a little bit challenging. I, I wouldn't say, uh, I'd say it's very consistent. Paul and I have worked with Taylor for three years now at least, I would say. Uh, we all live in the same city, mm-hmm. which does help. Uh, we together, you know, a lot of coaching teams, they don't see each other away from tournaments. And Paul and myself and Taylor are together pretty much every day when we're in LA. So the, that becomes uh, the communication becomes really consistent. Uh, messaging's the same, and and when obviously we know with with uh, availability of, of of all these tennis TV and all the forms of communication and group chats, we all on the same page. Mm-hmm. And Michael's been the same, you know, when if he's going to take Taylor on a, on a couple of weeks trip, he, it's, he's done it plenty of times. So. Do you feel like uh, maybe, I don't know if you'd be willing to be more, like maybe more specific about what each of qualities you each bring to Taylor that feels like is so beneficial for him? Well, the, I know Taylor probably the longest. I know his personality and Paul knows him now, but... Um, since he's you know first pro event, so I would say as far as uh, you know, Paul comes in with a vast amount of experience and with coaching Roger Federer and, and Pete Sampras and Tim Henman, so that is invaluable. I don't have those, those kind of uh, that, that kind of experience. So what that Paul brings that veteran knowledge to the table, 
which is amazing. And then I probably as far as like mentality, just or? as far as talking about what Roger felt in a certain situation and and pressure and you know conversations are every day well you know when I talk to Pete about a game style and this is how he it's just a lot of conversation about experience and that's a lot of coaching um oh you wouldn't say I'd do more the day-to-day stuff and I'd say it's pretty even uh uh the on-court workouts and so it's, yeah, I said works well. Yeah. yeah, and then just as far as like those those pressure moments that you just brought up are, are so important because everyone can play well at this level. What do you what do you feel like as a very experienced coach is so important to be able to handle those big moments? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, we run into that situation a lot, uh, even with Taylor, especially with Taylor. Uh, the most important thing a player can do is focus on his game style and be very confident and sure about uh, what he's going to do under pressure situations, not have any doubt of the way he's going to play, have an identity. Uh, Taylor sometimes overthinks a certain strategy and then I actually, you know, we try and tell him just try and simplify, don't overcomplicate your power game. Uh, we try and get, you know, Taylor's going to play a certain way, it doesn't matter who he plays and hopefully opponents adjust to him. You know, he's a power baseline, big server, and he's got to keep bringing that kind of game style day in, day out. And he's tough to beat. And then talking about big servers, I mean, so many of these players are having big serves. They're focusing on serves and returns. When when he's playing someone like, for example, Berrettini that he just played, you know they're going to hit aces. Like, how mentally do you approach a game style like that? Yeah, look, they've practiced together. We know Berrettini's got one of the biggest serves in the world. It comes in 135. You know what to expect. You know, there's a lot of analytics out there with patterns of play and where certain, you know, players favorite favor their certain spots in the serve. A lot of times, it actually comes down to direct matchups. So, you know, Berrettini might serve a certain way against certain players, but against Taylor, he's certainly going to, you know, serve a certain spot. And Taylor knows that, mm-hmm. and then Berrettini knows that he's going to serve there, and it becomes, yeah. his, you know, this battle because a lot of these players all know each other, but. You know, when it comes to, you know, Taylor returning, it's, it's usually a, a matter of uh, choice about how much he's going to chip it or, or get it in play or go for it and those kind of, the, on certain points and certain scores and, and what kind of strategy he's going to implement. Uh, a lot of times when you're playing big servers more than the first serve return, the most, like today, the, his best stat was actually second serve points one. So that's where you really got to take advantage of, of a big server is when they do miss the first serve, are you capitalizing on the second serve return? Mm-hmm. Today, Taylor did a great job with that against Berrettini. Yeah, and, the, um, and so much recently, especially like in the last five, ten years, the, a lot of data and statistics becoming more and more information out there for the players. Is it something that you embrace, having this all data available to you? Is it something Taylor embraces? Something we embrace as coaches, it's, it's just amazing how it's evolved and with Hawkeye and the amount of info that's disposable to you and how much you can research and you can actually really tailor towards the individual with, with what you're looking for. Um, I'd say it's for the coaches mostly. Uh, we look at that and we try and maybe refine it to cliff notes and we don't want to overcomplicate it. I think tennis is a game of instinct. There's certain patterns of play that we, that we favor, but... Um, I guess what would be the stuff that you would focus on the most, probably, in general, or is it is it individual for each player? I mean, we've looked. We've, for example, we've looked at something really as specific as a depth of a second serve return for, okay, and try to like get a, ma- a huge sample. 
and with that great great team back at the USTA with Jeff Russell and David Ramos, we'd maybe highlight an area and we'd see how many second serves Taylor's with depth mm-hmm. and speed. Now they have the speed of ball, obviously, mm-hmm. so if he's hitting at uh, 70 miles power and he's able to hit at six, seven feet from the line, what percentage of points and he's winning, and then we show him that number. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a, a strategy that actually mm-hmm. works successfully and use the data that way to actually justify mm-hmm. an opinion from a coach so a lot of times we'll bet we'll we'll use the data to justify uh, a, a theory. Mm-hmm. It really helps to for the, with that. Yeah, I, I've asked a few other coaches. Is, is there anything that you or Taylor have been su- surprised about when you've seen some of the data or, or some of the statistics? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any surprises. I mean, because um, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of players know, would feel that maybe. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any surprise. I mean, I think everyone with a certain style of of play have certain numbers they're looking for uh, you know either it's high aces and high doubles because that means you're going for your second serve I mean a counter punch is going to have lower numbers less unforced errors you know like some players you can you know if, if, if certain players like for example if Taylor's an aggressive baseline and I see he's only made one mistake for a set I'm like well you're not really heading the ball that number's not good either I'd mm-hmm. like to see his numbers on the high side with both which means he's playing this game style mm-hmm. so that's what you look at you know, I think the second serve speed has become a big one. Second serve return speeds become a big number that everybody's looking at. Um, so obviously, we all know with Nadal, everyone's looking at the RPM. So there's always going to be a new number that people are looking at. But ball speed, I think, with the next generation of young guys, it's pretty impressive to to kind of look at average ball speed, second serve ball yeah. speed, and that sort of stuff. Has that made you adjust maybe like some of his fitness or how he works on that? Not really. Off-court? Not really. I mean, um, I mean, everyone's fitness tailored towards where they play. I mean, if you're a power explosive guy, I mean, you're not going to be running seven miles mm-hmm. a day, and depending on your size. So, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, with Taylor, since he's 17, we've certainly always had the same messaging to him and and trying to get him to play a certain style of tennis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, work locked with Gina Ball on his le- on his speed and explosiveness, and he's actually moving, uh, you know, pretty very well, actually, laterally. Right. I think next step is trying to get him to... He did a great job today coming forward uh, against Berrettini and closed the net, and, uh, you know, I think they were going to try and work hard more on the, on the explosive steps moving forward. And a, a couple things, I've read a couple things that you've mentioned recently about Taylor is one that you, he has a sense of belief that he feels like he can beat anybody. Is that something that he's developed? Is that something that he's always felt? Or is that something that you've coached and helped him be able to get to that point? No, it's something he's always kind of, you know, he's always felt. And maybe it can can hurt you maybe, but I'd, I'd say I'd rather be a more the self-belief side than the side of doubt. Mm-hmm. And, since he was a since he was a junior, he's always had a lot of self-belief and believes he belongs. He loves the big stage. He loves the challenge. And look, results speak for themselves. So you can you know talk all you want, but it's a nice cat. You know, that's it's it's nice to have hear some self-belief and. But there's no lies out in the tennis court, you know, with, yeah. with the results and the rankings. I, I guess overall as a coach, do you feel like that's tough to coach for no, someone that maybe so. that doesn't necessarily have that deep sense of belief? or? Well, if you have someone with no self-belief, then your job as a coach is trying to Yeah, like belief. how would you go about that? Well, that comes with, you know, are they, are they confident in their game? And, how, mm. you know, you've got to kind of identify where the breakdown areas are and... 
you know, repetition builds confidence. And tennis is a game of repetition and, and doing things in the practice court that you're going to do under pressure and playing practice sets and being fit. And that all builds confidence. And I think if you have all those things buttoned up in the line, you'll feel you'll have more self-belief. Fritz, still only 24 and set to go from strength to strength. What of 30-year-old Grigor Dimitrov, who may have lost to Norrie but beat US Open champion Daniel Medvedev and Miami Open champion Hubert Hurkacz en route to the semi-finals? He teamed up with coach Dante Bottini at the start of the year and the Argentine has been sharing some of what they've been working on with Jill Krabus. To be a little bit more consistent on, on his game, you know, and uh, on the... On the tournaments, uh, we started the, on the preseason this year, and the first tournament was in Australia. So I think he started really well. Then he had uh, some a little bit bad luck of injuries, and now you know he's he's getting uh, back together. So I'm happy to to see that. And for you as a coach, when someone when you have such success and then someone gets injured, your approach to that and just getting him a little bit stronger. What do you do off court to get him in a better space? No, obviously work a lot physically and then uh, try to have him uh, mentally stable and, and happy and and keep believing, you know, keep believing on, on his tennis and, and everything uh, that he's doing. Uh, the, the process of the work, you know, obviously is, is very important. So so it's just to stay calm and, and keep believing. And he's, in my opinion, he's someone that is a very complete player very talented so as far as working on specific details what details were you focusing on with his game in particular obviously we work a lot in in, in a lot of aspects but i, I like uh, to say you know that i'm, I'm trying to keep him uh, coming a little more to the net and keep the, his aggressiveness uh, on the court uh, we work a lot on his backhand too you know and uh, yeah, he's, he's doing it great, you know, uh, on serves too, which uh, is a big weapon for him. So, so far, so good. And I, sp- I spoke to him briefly also in Washington, D.C. earlier, and he felt like he had just turned 30 years old, and he felt like he had gotten to a different stage as far as maturity mentally. Um, what would you say you feel like he's matured most with in his mental mental game? Well, I think he's, he's a little bit more calm and... Um, and especially on certain moments um, he's trying to you know to, to stay on the on the on the point a little bit longer instead of uh, just uh, going for the winner right away um, I think that's uh, that's give him a, a little bit uh, more belief on his game too you know uh, it's, it's not just to go for the winner right away so I think that's one of the parts. And for you as a coach, how how do you what steps do you take to get a player to be more calm in those moments? Because it's not easy task to do. No, well, it's it's all it's all about talking to him and, and explain him. You know, when we practice uh, certain situations that he's in, and and to 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 make him realize that. So it's it's, it's, it's uh, you have to be calm. You have to. Keep doing your best, you know, and, and control what you can control. You know, you cannot uh, be focusing on what the other guy is doing uh, sometimes, you know. Let him be. Just believe on your game. And so as far as belief, because I've always been fascinated this with by coaches, like it's so important to get a player to believe, but easier said than done. I think uh, as far as like it's just mentally, but being able to get that deep belief in a player, how, how do you do that as a coach? How do you approach that? 
you just keep doing it. You just keep doing it and keep telling the guy, you know, and, and, and show him the facts, you know, how, 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 does, how is that done? You know, obviously it's not going to work all day, every day, but for example, today it worked. You know, he was 6'4", uh, 4'1", down, two breaks down with a guy that uh, wasn't giving him anything, and he stayed in the match. It's, it's, it would have been easy for Grigor to just check out and say, okay, you know, I did everything that I could, but he stayed there, he kept believing, and that's how he got it. So you have to reinforce that and keep telling him that. And is that something you, that you feel like has changed in him recently? I mean, I know he was number three in the world, and he's slowly working his way back up to that spot again. Is that, but is that something that you've seen change in time with him? I think uh, lately, yes. Lately, uh, for the last two, three months, he's been working so hard in, in the, on the court and outside the court and been doing everything well and very professional way. So I think that, you know, now he's seeing that. And, and, and it shows on the court, you know. So, yeah, sometimes you're gonna lose the match because the other guy play better. But you gotta, you know, have a, you're gonna have a, a revenge uh, on, on the next tournament. So, yeah, so far he's been doing good. And I know sometimes, you know, you say off the court as well. I know I read an article where in the, you know, you talk a lot of stuff off court as far as life experiences. Do you feel like that those talks that you have translates to match play into practice courts? I think so. You know, we're still getting to know each other, uh, basically. You know, even though we spend a lot of time together, but you're still getting, you know, it's, it's not that easy. Uh, you, you need time to, to process and to believe in, in, in your coach or in your player and, and to, to understand each other. So, so yeah, I, I believe that the, he's been taking some of my advices and, and listening and, and I see that. I see that on the court and I see that when, when it's happening. I've seen things that I don't like sometimes and I really mark those things yeah. to him and, you know, and we have our discussions and, and I feel that, you know, he's been doing very, very good this last couple months. What about specifically on, on court, as far as as far as um, improvements and goals going forward? I think he's he's, he's coming in uh, more more to the net, which does something that I really like uh, for him to do. He has great volleys, as, as everybody knows, and yeah, that that part, you know, the return wise too. We've been working a lot on the return. I think uh, he can hit it a little more sometimes instead of just chipping. So that's something that he's been doing great. Um, yeah. And I know you've been um, also had a lot of experience as a coach. You've been a mentor for Nishikori for a very long time. Can you just tell us what you've learned from from your experiences with him and how that's helped you improve as a coach? Oh, I definitely learned a lot. You know, I, with with Kay, I was nine years, um, so you know, uh, I cannot point one thing uh, yeah. what I learned uh, from him, but. Uh, but, but, you know, being on the tour and playing so many important matches and being in important moments on his career, you know, obviously I, that gives me a lot of experience and, and how to handle certain moments and, and certain also practices, you know. So also, you know, I've been with him when he was injured, a, a, you know, a, a lot of the times and then how to approach those practice weeks or how to do that. So, yeah, yeah, for sure I, I learned a lot the with him. And as far as culturally, because it's a very different culture working with <coughs> Kay and then going to Dimitrov, were, were there different challenges in either way or different things that you learned culturally from the different players? Oh yes, that's that's for sure, that's for sure. You just, you know, you gotta be calm and you gotta be 
kind of more like a psychologist, you know. For to, both or what? For, for, for no, probably more with with Kay because okay. the, the, the culture is a lot mm. different, you know. Mm. He's from Japan, I'm from Argentina. We both live in U.S., mm -hmm. so you know we communicate. English is our second language, so obviously it was a big challenge mm -hmm. with him. But um, with Grigor, is probably now we're more. A, he's more like an adult. Grigor now he's 30 years old. With Kay, he was 20 years old, so it was a little more challenge. Grigor is more uh, outspoken. Kay, you know, not that much. More quiet. Yes, yeah. more quiet. So. So you had to be more calm with Kay, and now with Grigor, do you feel like you can be um, a little bit more, maybe more, show more emotion, a little bit more emotional? Or what oh, yes, 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 I think so. I think that with Grigor now, you know, obviously he's also older, we can talk also different topics, mm -hmm. and, and yes. So what are some things you like to do off the court together? Because you guys spend a lot of time together, you said, and you're still getting to know each other. Any fun activities that you like to do away from tennis? No, we go for dinners, you know, some walks sometimes. We've been playing cards lately a lot. I've seen a lot of players playing cards, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which I always win, I want to say that. Okay, good. So. It's, on, it's on the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got he, it down. He, he's not going to be happy He's not going to say that, the that, same that, thing, that, I'm assuming. Ah, he should, because it's true. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, we've been doing that. Congratulations on this relatively new partnership with you guys, and obviously he's had success, so we, we wish you the best with the continued success. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Grigor Dimitrov and Dante Bettini proving a great team, and the Bulgarian has also been teaming up to great effect for Tennis United with WTA player Belinda Bencic. They've been talking all things travel. Hi, Belinda. Hi. How are you? I'm good, you? Very good. Good to see you. You too. Let's have a little chat. Let's talk about travel a little bit. Let's tell the people how we really feel about that. Uh, for me personally, I have to say it's the hardest part of everything. Um, I love to be at the different places, but for me, the traveling, it's uh, for me, that's the hardest part. And especially Long it's flights? week to week. It's not even the long flights, it's just <laughs> yeah. the packing, unpacking. I'm a great packer. Yes. I love packing. Because Everything you have a lot of bags or? Yeah, I do. Yeah, you I usually do? have more than, than whoever I travel with, to be completely honest. I must say, okay. I love folding. So it's, okay. it makes it easier. I'll give you some tips later on. Okay. But uh, I used to enjoy it, I would say, more and more. But now the more you have to travel back to back, I agree, it's never, never the easiest. Yeah. I mean, but, um, but it's always good to have you know, the right people, the right team around, I think, which makes it easier. Uh, you know, I start doing also like a lot of like different pranks to everybody around me. E even though I'm not that type of a person, all of a sudden I start like enjoying myself a little bit more on those, okay. those trips. Okay, what, uh, what kind of pranks are you doing? Like on the travel or? Like, for example, I don't know if somebody's sleeping, I go and, uh, you know, like I put their fingers like in a water or something or like uh, I call the the stewardess to come over and be like oh this guy was asking for so and so like for something completely okay. like like so uh, basically you're annoying them and yeah then travel is easy for you but not for yeah, your not team for them, okay. not for them tell me what is your your secret to jet lag um I have to say I'm pretty good with jet lag I'm mm -hmm. not so jet lag and uh, it's usually because like right when I board a plane or just I'm mm -hmm. still home, I try to adapt to the time I'm going Very to. Good. I mean, I'm pretty good in that, but... Um, a lot of discipline, I feel. Yeah, I think so. I can yeah. really stay awake or just go to sleep. So I think this is my main tip. I mean, what else? What else can you do? I can relate to that. I can relate to that. Yeah, I'm very, very... <laughs> no, not so much discipline on that, but 
I'm a good sleeper. Can you sleep anywhere? Can I can you sleep, sleep on a anywhere. Plane? That's it's perfect. Yeah, that's good. That yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you. I can sleep here if you yeah, tell me in five I feel, minutes. <laughs> I feel the same. I feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, my mom used to pick me up from the like kindergarten. Like I never liked to stay in the afternoon. So every time I was waiting for her at the stairs, like so she can come, and I was falling asleep there. So. Okay. So that that yeah. thing finally starting to pay off even now. I think more. it's also with the beds because you know basically we're every week we are in a different hotel. Yeah. And if some people have the problems, like if they're not in their own bed, their own pillow, like something is different. I'm pretty good in that. So. Have you traveled with your own pillow? No. I no. have. <laughs> you have? Yes, yes. It's because you're maybe older a little bit now. <laughs> no, I don't know. I know. I I love I love the the fact. You know, I love the the. The comfort of the your comfort, like, you know, okay. it's like it's so nice to have like your own pillow. I think. But that's, you know that's easy because you have a lot of bags. You know, if I have yeah. one bag, I can just not take everything. You yeah, know? which is true. <laughs> well, that's my vanity of things. You know, like I. Yeah. I like to, to feel comfort. Okay. Um, so, are you like bringing any like personal stuff into your hotel room just to make like it more personal belonging, <laughs> other than my pillow? Yeah, just like to make it more at home. Uh, uh, no, no. Like I think. It's fair to say that some places I stay, uh, you know, they make everything possible when you enter into a room. I love to have flowers in the room a lot. For some reason, okay. I love flowers. I don't know why. So I've there's never a little, had there, there's a little, room. there's a little secret. I love okay. flowers, so they know, like, in certain hotels when I go, that I just love like red roses, for example. You know, it brings some sort of like a romance in the room, you know, and and you know how much time we spend in the room and everything. You just it's so yeah, nice to feel. Yeah, especially now like, with the bubbles. So. Exactly. So it's nice to feel like nice and cozy. But there's not like things. Oh, sorry. I'm traveling with my PlayStation lately. Oh. <laughs> Since okay. I have so much time, uh, so we play a lot with uh, with my team. Give me a top three destinations, go-to spots as soon as you land. So destinations for sure, um, New York. It's my okay. favorite city. So when I'm there, it's just, I feel like a different energy, like as soon as I step out of the plane. And it's just, I can measure that by how long I'm staying in this place and not being tired of it. Because, you know, usually like when you're 10 days somewhere, you get a little bit tired, like in our lives, obviously. Um, so New York is number one. Um, I really love Russia. I love St. Petersburg and Moscow. Wow. Yeah, it's just, um, I feel like there is so much like interesting history things uh, in yeah, the city course, to see like uh, history like the weather like when it's yeah. snowing everything food. is so food in food, moscow is food, absolutely crazy breakfast, right now yeah. yeah i definitely love italy i think i have to say rome but as well as like if i'm trying to go on a little trip or vacation or something yeah, i think like italy Positano, is always a good Portofino, yeah i've never uh, been there and it's yeah, on my bucket yeah. list it's yeah. really yeah i've been i've been to a few yeah. places i've been to capri as well yes. i love capri yeah I don't know. It's, it's so photogenic, no? <laughs> it's tough. It's tough to be biased, like in uh, I think in Italy, but it's for sure one of my go-to spots. I would say. I also like Paris. I have a love-hate relationship with that city. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love it. I lived there for quite some time, but you know, it's I've had some absolutely crazy results over the years there. So it's like. So it's a little bit on the yeah, results as well. Yeah, that's what I'm well. saying. It's, it's based on that as well. Yes, like, that's I what mean, I'm saying. It's, like, it's, it's in our minds. Yeah, you cannot love day. a city if you lose first round every time you're there. Yeah, so. yeah it <laughs> happened quite a few times to me as well. So yeah. I would say that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yours is like Paris and Italy and? Best. best. I love London. Okay. London. Uh, I don't so much. LA. All day long. I, I love Italy as well, also because I live. I mean, Monaco. It's super easy. Yeah, you can drive it like nearly every weekend to different type of place, mm -hmm. whatever you fancy. And there's always, 
There's always good pasta around the corner. I mean, <laughs> what can I tell you? I mean, everywhere you go, it's just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so food is amazing. So it's Italy. the hardest week by far, I would say. So how are you handling, you know, like the temptation of being in a city you love, but also like trying to stay disciplined about obviously your like yeah. performance, like to, to rest enough, but also to yeah. go out a little bit? So I don't know, I think it's self-discipline. I, I really believe that I think after the tournament you can always enjoy for a day and a half or two because I think that's, I mean, person, that's all I need. I need like day and a half after to just, whether it's sleeping, have a brunch instead of, uh, you know, having to wake up at early time, having more of a free schedule, I think is way more important to me than, than having to like go out or like party or anything like that. Yeah, I so agree. I always, yeah, I always try to like kind of stay very like self-aware, especially during the tournament, because you never know, of course, what time you're going to play. You might play early in the morning, you might play late at night. I found yeah. one of the keys to really always find a good regime. We're, we're the creatures of habits. I mean, any athlete is, if you think about it. not only in our sport, but once you find that consistency, mm -hmm. you also like it, you start enjoying it. And you're, yeah, you're, you have you're, all the rituals. You yeah, have all the rituals and things. Staying and long in the week. Um, exactly, You're exactly. doing the same things. For me, it's yeah. very hard. Because even though if you play uh, like late in yeah. the evening, you cannot yeah. go to the city or like no, do something course, else. Of course, you just, of course. You're doing maybe like a little warm up in the morning then go back to the hotel. Exactly. It's like you want to save energy. It's basically when we can go out. Yeah. It's after the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's why. And I think the, the thing is that what everybody sees and understands is only when we go out on that center court behind all that. Uh, and I think it's I think it's great for also that we're also doing this and explaining that that it's not all that throughout the throughout the whole year when you add up the traveling part and the discipline yeah. dedication I mean, like a, some of the really sacrifice like a job, yeah. yeah it's you're, it's a it's a, it's you're not a sitting in office job. Exactly. but you're you're active but basically it's, exactly. it's really all exactly. day everything exactly and i think it's important for for everybody to see when it's time to work it's work and of course when it's time to rest it's time to rest who do you call the most who do you keep in contact the most who do you want to speak the most i have to say i have very good people around me basically mm -hmm. like all the time my mom comes sometimes but if she's not around i think she's the person i call the most especially after matches um she's the first one to text i mean it's That's it's nice. always i don't know how of she course, does it but it's, it's just first always one. knows what to say <laughs> exactly yeah. um and then i really i keep in touch with my best friend sure. um She's she's also uh, used to play tennis. We know each other from like childhood, so she really gets That's it. Nice. She, understands. So she understands what you're going through exactly. mentally. Sometimes she comes to tournaments as well, um, so she she really knows uh, the life. Even though we have pretty different lives, I feel like still we're yeah. we're like, like well uh, connected, connected yeah. yeah, and we understand each other. So. That's very nice. Yeah, yeah. And you? I think my parents. Definitely my parents. Uh, I think. They never come, they never travel? They travel, but not as much anymore. I mean, my dad used to, I mean, be my coach when I was like 18. So even till nowadays, we speak about tennis. And first thing when we speak is always about tennis. Yeah. You know, my mom, she used to be a former volleyball player. So again, she understands and everything. So I would say that's my go-to, um, I guess, people. I think my, obviously my girlfriend, she's, she's traveling with me now. So it's, it's nice and like yeah. I have my, my couple of because usually when they're not, you know, I think it's that person yeah, you have the most contact that person, with. Exactly, exactly. If they're with so, it, then it's amazing. So, yeah. so yeah, it's just again very, very. It, it comes down to very like basic, and also the people that have been with you through. I mean, as I like to say, through hell and high water. So, uh, I think 
the more you keep it simple, the more you appreciate those moments with those people, I think it's where like it really really adds up and puts you in a, such a such a great headspace. Well, Grigor, it's been a great chat. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, it's interesting to see another player's view. So now I get to know you too a little bit more. Good luck this week. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you to Grigor Dimitrov and Belinda Bencic there. Also to our trio of top coaches this week, Dante Bettini, Facundo Lugones and David Nankin. Check out the podcast feed for a very special special this week as Jill Krabus chats with former coach of both Pete Sampras and Roger Federer, that is Paul Anacone. And we'll be back next weekend with another pod packed full of exclusive chats with the game's biggest stars. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.